Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments of our past to shine a light on wider histories. I'm Rebecca Adil and I'll be your guide. Sit back, relax and listen as we delve into the latest episode, The Facemaker of World War One. It's the 3rd of August 1960 and a 78-year-old surgeon is conducting a major operation on a patient's injured leg. The surgeon, Harold Gillies, has been cutting, repairing and correcting human bodies for decades. But at some point during this procedure, blood that has been failing to flow to his brain correctly triggers a stroke. By the 10th of September, the surgeon, whose pioneering work had transformed modern surgery, would be dead. In this episode, I'm joined by award-winning historian and author Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris to explore the life and legacy of Harold Gillies, who came to prominence fixing men's faces during World War I. Lindsay's incredible new book, The Facemaker, tells the story. Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you about The Facemaker. Okay, first question. What drew you to writing about... Plastic surgery during the First World War. <laughs> I asked myself that a lot, Rebecca. Trust me. Um, you know, and actually at one point while I was writing this book, I just thought I must have lost my mind to go into something so complex as facial reconstruction during the First World War. It's it's a very technical subject, although the book is not technical. Hopefully you will not find it that way if I've done my job right. But I, I knew virtually nothing about the First World War. I really was starting from zero. So if you're listening and you don't know anything about the First World War, I was right there with you. So, you know, I, I had to really start from the beginning. And th that's why this took five years to research and write. And I think as a writer, my first and foremost goal is to always be challenging myself. Although I have a PhD in the history of science and medicine, I really call myself a storyteller these days. And so when I'm thinking about choosing the next subject of my book, I live with the ghosts for a while. Like there's always a couple ghosts in my head. And then I decide what is the story there? And with Harold Gillies, the pioneering surgeon who rebuilt soldiers' faces during the First World War, again, didn't know anything about it, but I knew that there was a really good story there, and I wanted to flesh that out. Could you tell us a little bit about his early life? He was born in New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, he, he enters the war as an ENT surgeon, air, nose, and throat uh, surgeon at this time. So plastic surgery as such does predate the First World War. In fact, the term plastic surgery was coined in 1798 by the French surgeon Joseph Dussault. At the time, plastic meant something that you could shape or you could mold. So in this instance, it was a person's skin or soft tissue. And of course, there were ancient procedures like rhinoplasty, but all of these earlier attempts at altering a person's appearance really focused on very small areas of the face, such as the ears or the nose. And you don't really get sort of the wholesale restructuring of the face until maybe the American Civil War in the mid-19th century. And even then, it was really being done on a very small scale. So the First World War allowed plastic surgery to enter the modern era because of the great need. There were a lot of men getting shot in the face. They were being made. They were burned, they were gassed, they were even kicked in the face by horses. And so that's where Gillies enters. And as you say, he was a New Zealander. He moved to England. He went to Cambridge University. So he's introduced to this sort of great need for facial reconstruction through this character in the book named Charles Valadier, who is this French-American dentist. By the standards of the early 20th century, this is a really niche 
niche area to specialize in. What was it that drew Gillies to reconstructive surgery? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, Gillies was sort of one of those annoying people who was good at everything he did. He was a very good sportsman. He was an amateur golf champion. He was a competent artist. I think there was a real creative side. And when you look at plastic surgery, there is that aspect where it's art plus science. When he volunteers with the Red Cross and he meets Charles Vladier, he's showing that there's this great need for facial reconstruction. Vladier is this bigger than life character for people who read the butchering art and came to my talks, you'll remember I used to tell the story about this guy, Robert Liston, who was the fastest knife in the West End. Liston could take your leg off in under 30 seconds in the mid-19th century. Charles Vladier is very much my Robert Liston of the face maker. He's, he's, so, he's bigger than life. He's a legend. He works for the entire war for free, and he retrofits his Rolls Royce with a dental chair, and he literally drives it to the front under a hail of bullets. Like, like I said, this guy is a legend. And when Gillies comes in contact with him, he's seen this kind of work that Vladier is doing on these facial injuries. And it's really intriguing to him. It's very challenging. This is before antibiotics. Anesthesia is still very primitive. And so there's all of these challenges. And Gillies was someone who really gravitated towards those big challenges. So I want to get a sense of what there was beforehand. Obviously, I'm not the historian of the 20th century, nor the 19th or the 18th century, but you do pick up bits and pieces just kind of by osmosis. But could you talk us through what came before. And also, I really want to hear a little bit about these facial masks that were constructed. Yeah, absolutely. And and also, by the way, not a historian of 20th century either. You know, it's funny because my supervisor at Oxford, she, I, I was an early modernist. I started out as an early modernist. And so when I wrote The Butchering Art, she was like, wow, you've really gone forward in time. And now I'm in the 20th century. And there's been real challenges with that as a medical historian. For instance, I didn't realize that in some cases I would have to prove that these men and were dead before I got their patient files. So it's it's been definitely a big, steep learning curve for me. Like I said, plastic surgery predated the First World War, and you do have things like rhinoplasty going on much, much earlier. A lot of times this is done as a survival mechanism because you wouldn't go under elective surgery before antibiotics, before germ theory, et cetera, because it would carry so many risks. So a lot of times in earlier periods, for instance, people got set something called saddle nose. That's when your nose caves into your face, and this was caused by syphilis. And incidentally, a lot of disfigurement in earlier periods were linked to social diseases or sexual diseases, as well as criminality, because sometimes criminals were purposely disfigured. And so that bias around disfigurement goes all the way till today. I mean, how many Hollywood villains are disfigured? right? So you have Darth Vader, you have Voldemort, you have Blofeld, you have Joker, you have Harvey Two-Face who becomes evil after he's disfigured. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And so these facial biases are, are very much well and alive today as they were at the on the eve of the First World War. When all of these men become maimed and disfigured, and I chose that term disfigured in consultation with a disability activist named Ariel Henley, and that might not be a term that people use today, but we felt it was appropriate here because they were disfigured to the society that they lived in and I didn't want to lessen that impact that prejudice that they were facing when they were disfigured during the first world war a lot of them turned to mass makers who offered these wonderful non-surgical solutions some people listening might be familiar with the character Richard Harrow from Boardwalk Empire he wears one of these prosthetics and they're beautiful I mean they're beautifully rendered whenever I tweet or, or share photos on Instagram they always sort of go semi-viral remember they look very realistic 
realistic in a still photo, but if you were sitting across from someone, it could be unsettling because it doesn't operate like a face. It doesn't move. It doesn't age. They were very uncomfortable to wear. So everybody needs to remember that these men were wearing it for you. They were wearing it for the viewer. And they ultimately didn't offer the long-term solution. But as you say, you know, the, the facial prosthetics go way back. Um, people sometimes wore these gold or bronze noses if they lost their nose in a duel or if they lost it to disease. So there is a little bit of a precedent for that kind of thing. But you really start to see these beautifully rendered masks in the First World War. One of the things that I think is really special in your book is that you deal with these themes so sensitively. And it's such a difficult balancing act when you're a historian talking about things that are so gory and graphic and also having to get across the human side and I just think you do that so seamlessly it's one of the things that really stood out to me when I was reading your book but what I really liked as well is the way that you're able to take us from the battlefield to the hospital and I wonder if you could for listeners if you could take us on that journey yeah so I when I started writing this book remember I knew nothing <laughs> and I knew, though, that I wanted to drop readers into the middle of the action right away. And I do lean heavily into the violence because I think that I wouldn't be doing these men justice unless I was explaining exactly what it was like to fight in those trenches, to die in those trenches. What did it smell like? What did it feel like? What did it look like? And so I start with the story of Percy Clare, who gets shot in the face during the Battle of Cambry in 1917. And the reason I chose him was because he wrote this beautiful diary and, and he talks all about from injury to getting to Gilly's Hospital later on. And the way he describes this is so vivid. But as you say, I, I wanted it to be quite visceral. Now, the challenge was that when you were hit in the face, first of all, anybody who's had even a minor cut on their face will know that it bleeds and it bleeds and it bleeds. The face is very vascular. And so what happens is you get hit in the face, you're on the battlefield. Now, the stretcher bearers, the moment that they step out onto that field, they become targets themselves. And they had to make very quick decisions about who they were going to rescue and who they were going to leave behind. Now, when you're looking at these facial wounds, and you will see photos of these men in my book, instantly you can understand why they thought it wasn't survivable. Sometimes these men had no jaw. There was a man named Private Walter Ashworth who lays on the battlefield for three entire days without a jaw, unable to scream for help. And it's, it's hard for us to imagine. So that was the first challenge. The other challenge was that a lot of these men, if they were shot in the face, they fell onto their backs or they were placed onto their backs by well-meaning medics. And in the doing of that, they actually ended up drowning in their own blood or their tongue slipped back into the back of their throat because they were missing certain kind of anatomy that anchored the tongue into a normal position. So again, just surviving it was a huge battle. From that point, the evacuation chain had something like nine or 10 steps. So you would be brought to a casualty clearing station at one point, you'd be brought to a field hospital, et cetera, et cetera, back to a base hospital, onto a boat, uh, evacuated back to Britain. Then you had to get into Gilly's hands. Now, at the beginning of the war, Gillies had opened a specialty unit in Aldershot, and he actually made labels. He wrote labels and addressed them to himself and sent them to the front. And so these men began arriving at the hospital with these labels addressed to Harold Gillies, and um, and he became overwhelmed very quickly, you know. And so eventually he had to open an entire hospital, the first of its kind, dedicated to facial reconstruction. But yeah, the, it was it was an incredibly complex journey. Some men were sent to the wrong hospital, they spent or they spent a lot of time elsewhere being treated. They ended up in Gillies' care later. Gillies would have to undo some of that work. So it was uh, it was a lucky stroke if you ended up in Gillies' hands. Obviously, as we know, Gillies was the, 
the genius behind all of the procedures, but he definitely worked as part of a team. And, you know, there were photographers there, illustrators, nurses, of course. I wonder if you could give us a bit of an overview or a flavour of this setup. Yeah, and this is really where Harold Gillies stands out from other surgeons at this time working on facial reconstruction. Because remember, he's not the only one. You know, you have a, a guy named Jacques Joseph in Germany. He's working on facial reconstruction and was a, was a brilliant uh, reconstructive surgeon as well. You have French surgeons. You have all kinds of people because there is such a great need. 280,000 men from France, Britain, and Germany alone required some kind of reconstructive work before the war was over. So Gillies certainly isn't the only one doing it. But where he excels is the fact that he takes this very collaborative approach. And partly because he had met Charles Valadier and his, his Rolls Royce, he understood the importance, for instance, of dentistry. So he ends up working with a dental surgeon named William Kelsey Fry. He brings in artists like Henry Tonks who paint these wonderful portraits of these men and also provide pictorial records of Gilly's groundbreaking work. He brings in photographers, x-ray technicians, you name it, and they all work together collaboratively to rebuild a face. And so there's a real aspect of both creative as well as scientific pursuit at the hospital. It, It must have been really difficult. This was one of the things I was thinking about. You know, you can do the procedures, you can do the corrective surgery, the facial reconstruction, but it takes a while for scar tissue to heal and it must have been really hard to not know whether you'd done a good job straight away and have all the hopes and expectations of these patients placed upon you. And there was a lot of trial and error. You know, a lot of people have asked me, is this book about the guinea pig club? Because the guinea pigs were very famous in World War II. They were these burn pilots who were operated on by Archibald McIndoe. Now, McIndoe was actually Gilly's cousin, and it was Gilly's who introduced McIndoe to the strange new art of plastic surgery. So I always tell people, this isn't the guinea pig club, it's the prequel to the guinea pig club. But of course, these men were just as much guinea pigs, if not even more so, in World War One. You have a story about Lieutenant William Spreckley. He ends up being one of Gilly's best examples of an early rhinoplasty. But what happened was he lost his entire nose. And you'll see the pictures in the book if you pick up a copy. But his nose was gone. There was just a crater there. And so Gillies had to rebuild the nose. And he, he devised a new method to do so. And a lot of the surgeons working with him thought, this is not going to work. And when Spreckley comes out of the operation, his nose is enormous. And all the surgeons are laughing at Gillies because they said, oh, this didn't this didn't work. They likened uh, Spreckley's nose to an anteater's nose. Those are his just their descriptions, not mine. But eventually, the swelling subsided and the nose began to settle and it looked really good. And Gillies even said in his case notes that eventually Spreckley went back to the war in World War II. Him and his nose went back into the army. So there were there were moments where, you know, things didn't work or maybe there were moments where it looked like it wasn't going to work, but then it did work. So there was a lot of trial and error. And, you know, sometimes that also ended in some of these patients' deaths. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing, isn't it? I mean, obviously they knew that there was risk, but but it must have been quite scary and traumatic for the other people. Yeah, they knew the risk. But, you know, I always want to remind people, too, that we have to understand that. I'll give an example. Harold Gillies banned mirrors on his wards. And this was done under the 
guys that it was protecting these men because of course your face could look worse before it looks better. And that was all valid and that was coming from a valid place in Gillies. However, he inadvertently instilled in them a belief that they had faces that weren't worth looking at. And when these men left the hospital grounds, they were often forced to sit on brightly painted blue benches so that the public knew not to look at them. So it was a very isolating experience. And arguably, Harold Gillies himself is a product of the facial biases and prejudices of his day because beyond restoring function, obviously you want someone to be able to eat and to swallow and to speak, he was going far beyond. So these men were sometimes undergoing multiple reconstructive surgeries over several years, and they were going beyond the restoring of function because the face needed to be socially acceptable by the standards of its day. So Gillies himself is really a product of that facial bias of that society. Do we have a sense of the psychological impact of this on his patients? I mean, it's it's hard to, you know, completely get a sense of it because obviously when people are recording in letters and diaries they're not always honest as well in these letters and diaries certainly we know that it could be very isolating there's a story I tell about a corporal X we don't have his name we only have a description from one of the nurses that worked with Gillies and he had snuck in a shaving mirror and so he ended up seeing his face after it was on bandage and he sunk into a depression and the nurse suggested that his fian- that he invite his fiance to come visit and he said that he would never see her again. So he broke off the engagement by writing her a letter and lying that he had met a woman in France because he wanted to spare her, in his mind, the existence of being married to him because he was disfigured. So there were, there were terrible stories. And even Walter Ashworth, who laid on the field for three days without a jaw, he his his fiance breaks off the engagement but i loved that story because the fiance's friend gets wind of this and she begins writing ashworth at the hospital and the two fall in love and they end up getting married so you know there were certainly gillies also helped restore their spirits through this kind of surgery a lot of these men went on to live very you know, fulfilling lives. But I did say that not all wounds were created on the battlefield at this time. And a lot of them continued to face a lot of prejudice even after they had come out of Gilly's care. Yeah, I mean, it's something that we've discussed previously in this podcast. And it's this this whole notion of the First World War, the experiences of the soldiers, they just didn't talk about it. They kept it to themselves. And I imagine that if you've got such a, a visible injury as well it would make it doubly hard to speak about those experiences i mean this i i often say that this was a time when losing a limb made you a hero but losing a face made you a monster the brilliancy of gilly's hospital the queen's hospital at sidcup was that everybody was disfigured and so i think that actually helped a lot of these men because if you had a, a, a facial injury and you were at a hospital that was that treated all kinds of injuries you might not want to partake in any of the social activities at the hospital because because you might feel self-conscious. Whereas at Gilly's Hospital, everybody was disfigured. So, you know, he has classes. You can learn a foreign language. You could take toy-making classes. And the hospital really becomes a community, and these men are able to socialize and to feel less self-conscious. And I think that was really to their benefit when they reassimilated back into society. Let's turn back to Gillies then. So he did this amazing work during the First World War. What happened to him afterwards? 
so Gillies continues to work on the men after the war is over because, uh, you know, as that saying goes, war is only over for the dead. Um, a lot of these men would continue to require surgical help well after the war, well, you know, 10, even 10 years after the war was over. So he does continue his reconstructive work. He feels very passionately about plastic surgery at that point, but plastic surgery isn't really a, a, a specialty of medicine, uh, a standalone specialty. So He's got a little bit of work to do to convince people that plastic surgery is a worthy subspecialty of surgery. So he begins branching out into cosmetic surgery. And at first he felt a little bit guilty. He was wondering if making money off cosmetic surgery um, was you know, somehow less ethical to what he was doing in reconstructive surgery. But then he came to the conclusion that people should be able to control their identity and he felt that he was giving a lot of these people the same kind of help that he was providing these soldiers if they felt insecure about something about their face he could provide a service for them so he does branch into cosmetic surgery and people have to understand as well that plastic surgery is a is like one big heading and then underneath you have reconstructive and cosmetic and so even today reconstructive surgery is still a major part of plastic surgery what do you think he'd make of surgery today <laughs> I you know, it's funny because a lot of people want to talk about, you know, sort of what the industry has become. And I think there's a bigger discussion to be had there about, for instance, how plastic surgery is advertised to younger people. Um, I, you know, I know you have a daughter and you probably think about this a lot on Instagram. You know, it can have a real effect on someone's self-confidence, certainly. But as we know, plastic surgeons also continue to do amazing things. At the end of the book, I talk about face transplants. I think that if Gillies had lived, this would have been an exciting time and, and something that would have interest him. We can literally transpo- transplant someone's face onto another person. Now, face transplants are not just plastic or reconstructive surgery. They're also part of transplant surgery. So they're, they're just a fascinating subfield there. So I think he would have been excited by the challenges, you know, even after uh, World War II, because he continues to work during World War II, he's approached by a trans man named Michael Dillon, and he performs the first ever phalloplasty in 1949 on a trans man. A phalloplasty is an operation to, to construct a penis. And Michael Dillon approaches him about this, and Gillies takes him on as a patient. He actually hides the reasons why Michael Dillon is coming to the clinic to protect Michael Dillon. So he gives him a false diagnosis to protect his identity as a trans man. And much later, uh, Michael Dillon is outed by the British press. And it's such a media frenzy that Michael Dillon is uh, driven from from the country. And in Michael Dillon's diaries and letters, he says that Gillies stands by him. And I said that, you know, there weren't many people in 1949 who would have viewed Michael Dillon as a man, but Gillies was one of them. So he was always pushing the envelope. And he really believed people should be the master of their own identities and be able to identify themselves as they wished. Born in 1882, Gillies had seen the world evolve beyond recognition, and he'd been a part of that change. After the World Wars, he'd continued to teach and operate right up until the fateful day in August 1960 when he suffered a stroke. I'm interested to know what his lasting legacy has been on the world of plastic surgery, and whether he was recognised during World War I. 
Gillies, right after the First World War, he was he was known in circles, but he didn't get the recognition I think that he deserved, at least in the immediate aftermath. In fact, one of the uh, British surgeons, Sir William Abernathy Lane, said that men who save life never get the same appreciation and reward as those whose business it is to destroy it. And he was really upset that Gillies didn't get his knighthood until much later after the war was over. He did eventually get his knighthood, and so he is Sir Harold Gillies now. But he he didn't necessarily get that immediate recognition, but he does sort of live into his own fame, at least amongst the medical community. And even today, when I talk to surgeons, they know who Sir, Sir Harold Gillies is. They have his book. Um, so it's really fun to talk to plastic surgeons today because they really feel like that that genealogy, you know, that this is their grandfather almost. Today, people refer to him as perhaps the father of plastic surgery. I would say maybe if we were going to use a title, the father of modern plastic surgery, because of course we know that it was going on before the First World War. But it was really Gillies who was able to test and try new methods and for those methods to become standardized and that's really what ushered it into a new era. So I think his legacy is very much that, that he was the one to push it into the modern era. And fascinatingly, I love this, you have his, is it his great-nephew narrating your audiobook? Yes, yeah, his great-great-nephew, actually. It's it's quite funny. Um, So his great-great-nephew is a Hollywood actor named Daniel Gillies, who's quite famous. He was in The Vampire Diaries and all kinds of shows. And I tweeted kind of a joke that I really wanted him to do this audiobook. And I joked about it because by just a weird coincidence a guy named Ralph Lister actually narrated the audiobook for the butchering art and he happens to be a relative of Joseph Lister whom the book is about so I don't know what I'm going to do for the third book this seems to be like this kind of pattern I'm setting but I joked to Daniel Gillies not expecting him to answer because he has millions of followers and he said let's do it and um, it's been really a joy to hear some of the clips he has he has that New Zealand twang to his voice which I imagine Gillies would have had and he's also really enjoyed learning about his ancestor I guess when he was recording he would stop and say oh I didn't know that so that's been really fun and I'm hoping to meet up with him in LA and you know who knows I would love him to do like an adaptation you know Rebecca you and me we love adaptations and and seeing these things come to screen so I would love for him to be involved and he said he would be interested in that so I don't know we'll have to see so listeners do buy Lindsay's book because (laughs) by the time this podcast comes out it will be available that's the rule if you listen it is. It is the rule. It is the rule. Lindsay, what's the next book then? <sighs> okay, so there's there's two. Um, next year, I'm going to be coming out with my children's book called Scourge with my husband, Adrian Teal, who is head caricaturist for Spitting Image. It's a, it's a bloody romp through medical history, history's six deadliest diseases and the things that doctors tried to do to, to solve those mysteries. So that's been great fun, although that's been a lot more complicated than I thought it was going to. I thought this would be a breeze to write after The Face Maker. No, it has not. <laughs> Who knew that, you know, describing attenuated viruses and immunization would be really difficult for a children's audience. So that's the first thing. And we're excited because it's it's going to be heavily illustrated and Adrian's fantastic at that. And I, I'm hoping that we'll have like a little exhibition of the artwork at the old operating theater in London, which is a fantastic museum. So that's the next one. And then my next adult book is on Joseph Bell, who is the real life inspiration for Sherlock Holmes. He taught Conan Doyle and there really hasn't been much focus on him um, but he's a fascinating character so it's going to be all about forensics 
in the Victorian period and all of these real life inspirations. So you have the real life inspiration for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and all of these kinds of, you know, quirky characters operating up there in Scotland in the 19th century. And if you're listening and <laughs> Joseph Bell is your granddad, great, great uncle, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> get in touch because Lindsay might have you reading Get in touch. <laughs> Yeah, that would be excellent. I know I'm going to have to keep this up. I don't know. I'm I'm sweating it out, Rebecca. This is going to this is this is something I have to keep up. But yeah, I'm looking forward to going back to the 19th century. It's going to be like slipping into a warm bath. And I think that this book's going to be suitably different from the butchering art that it will feel like a challenge as well, because it's about forensics and crime and all of that fun stuff. So that will be really exciting. Oh, I love it. Okay, Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I wish you the best of luck with the face makeup. It's a brilliant book. Thank you. Thank you so much. 